Hello and welcome to episode 91 of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. This is Colin Yeo and I'm joined by my colleague CJ McKinney. We are covering events from July 2021 and we are starting with a Supreme Court decision on deportation, which has its pluses and its minuses, Um, some developments on immigration judicial reviews, we've got some business immigration stuff, new type of visa, uh, and then we're off in the other direction completely to cover asylum and refugee issues. We're going to end with a couple of court decisions on deception and long residence. We are not covering the immigration bill published in July, as we did a separate podcast on some of the slightly more esoteric um, aspects of that uh, a couple of weeks ago, which you can listen to separately. If you want to claim CPD points for um, reading material and listening to the podcast, then you can head over to freemovement.org, sorry, freemovement.org.uk slash training, and you can sign up as a member there. Right, CJ, over to you. Thanks, Colin. We'll start with that Supreme Court decision on deportation. It's called San Ambar and Secretary of State for the Home Department's 2021 UKSC2. Mr. Sanambar is from Iran. He arrived in the UK as a boy of nine, but as a teenager, he was convicted of several offences, including robbing people with a knife and attempts to deport him have been going on since 2013, remarkably. So the focus of this Supreme Court judgment was on the human rights case law that's relevant to deporting someone who has lived in a country for most of their life, as Mr. Sanambar has. And what comes out of those cases is that, and here I quote from the judgment, it is clear that a delicate and holistic assessment of all the criteria flowing from the European Convention's case law is required in order to justify the expulsion of a settled migrant like the appellant who has lived almost all of his life in the host country. So you said there's pluses and minuses. I suppose that's a plus, a sort of useful sentiment that you reckon practitioners might want to cite in in similar cases. Uh, But the minuses, it didn't help Mr. Sanambar in this particular case, did it? Because of what the court went on to find about uh, integration. Yeah, and that's the that's the big plus, really. The rest of it is minuses. That's <laughs> trying to be trying to find some positive sort of silver lining here. Um, so yeah, and the, the other the other thing that I thought stood out is that there are a couple of reasonably helpful courts of appeal cases that get a kind of stamp of approval from the Supreme Court here, including the the Kamara um, case, which is is quite good on the issue of what integration means. And that's a really loaded. Um, controversial word because it's it often has racial sort of overtones or under, un, at least undertones to it but it, it's sort of do, it's used in the um, statutory language itself of the the human rights consideration so there's just judges have got no choice but to engage with it um, and and sort of try and work out what it means and um, the Kamara case is is quite a nice sort of broad approach to what integration means, which is which is quite helpful. So we've got this kind of um, statement directly from the Supreme Court about the sort of holistic assessment of all the criteria. Um, they're quite clear that the, you know, the, the Strasbourg jurisprudence is important and has to be followed. That's the kind of Bulti from Switzerland, Unum Netherlands, Maslow and Austria, Austria, I think it was, wasn't it, that one? Yeah. Um, and um, so that again, that's helpful. And one of the the things I really noted as I was, as reading through this on the the morning it came out was that there's there's no citation of the statutory rules in in the judgment. And the statutory rules have almost kind of they're in the background because they kind of underpin what's going on in the judgment, but they don't get much explicit um, reference really. And the Supreme Court just don't seem that interested in analyzing the kind of ins and outs of the the human rights criteria they're more interested in the kind of substantive exercise that's required by the the Strasbourg jurisprudence which I think is also to be taken as a kind of um, positive in this context 
Um, but yeah, as you said, I mean, it's really bad news for him. And it's very stark, I think, when you look at the facts. He'd been here for a very long time. Um, he'd had all sorts of family difficulties, witnessed domestic violence. Um, he'd committed the crimes when he was um, a juvenile. And um, and yet he's got to go to this country that he he barely knows on the basis of his mother's uh, like two visits over the course of several years for like basically a holiday. And that, that was to show that that was cited as showing that he had some sort of integrative links. I'm not sure it's a word, but I'm just going to ignore that. And, and some sort of links with Iran that would help him to integrate there. Um, so it, it's pretty, um, yeah, it's pretty stark reminder of how harsh these kinds of judgments can can be, even though there are, I think, some silver silver lining aspects of this to pick up on. Speaking of harsh, it, it's not relevant to the law in particular, but you did pick out, I think, some objectionable language from the Supreme Court in terms of how it described Mr. Salambar himself personally, which I think you took uh, exception to. Yeah, and you sort of ex- expect people not to come out of judgments very well when they've done some really serious stuff like this guy has, you know, his knife crime stuff, uh, mugging people basically. But some of the, I, I, I thought there was some unnecessarily um, difficult, problematic bits. So that, that, that what they choose to cite and what they choose to say in the judgment is quite revealing of what's going on here. And they deliberately chose to use, I think actually, to be fair, his own words here about, about targeting young posh people in West London. Um, yeah, that just, it just didn't need to be said. It didn't need to be included in the judgment. Um, as if crimes against young uh, or old poor people are somehow less serious, and it, yeah, and frankly, it reads as a synonym for white as well to to, to my eyes. Um, and then some stuff about um, he would have had a much longer sentence if he'd been an adult. It's like, well, well, yes, but but he wasn't. <laughs> it's like, why? Just why would you why would you say that in a judgment? It's just uh, it's just utterly unnecessary, and it suggests that there's there's some some deep currents uh, underpinning this this judgment which are undesirable frankly so euphemistically put we'll leave it there uh, move on then to judicial review there is a bill the judicial review bill not obviously as important as the borders bill which we discussed in the last episode but there's one very relevant bit to immigration and that is the abolition of the type of judicial review known as cart or iba where you can challenge the refusal of the upper tribunal to hear an immigration appeal. You can challenge that refusal in the high court and sort of reopen the appeal that way. The government has been threatening to abolish this CART or IBA process, and there is now a clause to that effect in the bill. Although it's not a 100% abolition, as was perhaps originally proposed, the clause says you would still be able to bring a CART judicial review in a few circumstances, very narrow ones, I think. For example, if the tribunal had acted in bad faith or in fundamental breach of the principles of natural justice. So they have given a bit of ground there. But I mean, could you see any card cases being possible in practice under this kind of a test? Uh, it's it's possible. I, I'm Drawing on my own experiences, I'm, I, I, I've always exercised a lot of restraint in pursuing a card judicial review. I've, I've done a handful over the years. And um, of that handful, I can't remember how many, but only one succeeded. And it was in a situation where I don't think it would meet the new test. And arguably it might, but I don't think it would. And it was where the tribunal, uh, on a paper hearing, the upper tribunal had taken some new points without giving notice to the appellant. 
And, and you could argue that that is in fundamental breach of the principles of natural justice. But I think realistically, it was just in breach of the principles of natural justice, not in fundamental breach. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I, I don't know. It's, uh, it's certainly that there are very few um, of these cart JRs succeed, but the ones that do, the tribunals acted very badly. And I don't think these um, exceptions will properly capture those those you know the ones that would succeed at the moment. So um, it's it's definitely a retrograde step, but it's not one it's not one that's going to have much practical import um, because it, it just doesn't affect that that many people. It, it it might have indirect consequences. So you know if this is the precursor to ousting judicial review in other circumstances and you know there is a point of principle here potentially but on just on a, on a purely practical level i don't think it's going to have that much of an impact in terms of judicial review procedure more generally there's a case holding that the upper tribunal can accept late acknowledgement of service from the home office uh, the argument here was that if the home office is served with their judicial review and it's late in filing that formal response then it shouldn't be able to take part in the permission stage of the case at all. Time limits are important. If you miss the time limit, then tough luck. But the Court of Appeal has rejected that argument. Uh, it said basically it would be unjust to ignore relevant material uh, just because it's late. So some flexibility there for government lawyers. Um, Bilal wrote up that judgment and he says it's not a surprising outcome, really. Would you agree? No, it's not a surprising outcome at all. Um, you sort of expect judges to to show this kind of lenience to the Home Office, one of the parties in in you know supposedly adversarial proceedings where the court is a neutral party, but absolutely expect them to show this kind of leniency. And you know everything they say about the Home Office in this case and not being in the interest of justice and so on would also, I, I'd, I'd argue, apply to you know late service by appellants and so on. But of course, we wouldn't expect the upper tribunal or the court of appeal to show leniency in those cases. I think Bilal gently points out um, at, at the end of that piece. And yeah, the court totally dodges this issue of whether the Kumar arrangements were lawful. This is you know, really obscure for, for non-public lawyers, but this was the um, sort of automatic uh, flexibility that the home office was granted by the upper tribunal for a very long period because they, they just had too much work going on. Um, and, and, you know, I'm really sympathetic to the government lawyers who who did have too much work going on because they had been inadequately resourced by the Home Office, by the Ministry of Justice, whoever it is who, who, who runs that department. Um, but, you know, that's also true for appellant claimant lawyers who are massively underpaid and, and screwed over, quite frankly, by by the legal aid agency. So just, you know, just the, the apparent lack of awareness by many, many judges of what they say about the Home Office also applies um, to, to claimants and to other lawyers is just, it's really stark to my mind. Yeah, that case is KA and Secretary of States 2021 EWCA Civ 1040. Let's talk then about business immigration, the points-based immigration system. There is a new visa on the cards, and this is a real thing, not just a rebranding exercise. It's called the High Potential Individual Route, and it will be an unsponsored work route, so you would not need a job offer from a UK employer to get this visa. The announcement is in the government's innovation strategy, and it says eligibility will be open to applicants who have graduated from a top global university. So we don't know exactly what that means. We're speculating that it could be university league tables that are used. Maybe that would include UK universities so that overseas students here could switch onto this route. 
maybe not details uh, to follow in due course and we'll look out for them and report them as usual and um, so it is fairly exciting more visas are always welcome um but colin i can sense you lifting a bucket of cold water to pour all over this announcement what's the <laughs> what's the cynical view Oh, how tragic that I'm so predictable. Uh, I think um, I think Alex um, did a, a write-up for us actually subsequent to this, and so maybe maybe sort of came out in August, so we haven't haven't included it, but saying that you know actually the fundamental problem with the Home Office dealing with these kind of unsponsored routes, so you know the, the highly skilled migrant program before it, and then and then Tier One General as it was as it was rebadged. The problem is that the Home Office expects to be able to predict outcomes on the basis of certain inputs so they they sort of think well because highly successful people have these characteristics if we select these characteristics then these people will be highly successful and it's just it just doesn't work because there's lots of people with those characteristics who don't become highly successful as well and 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 then they get they get punished by the home office for their lack of success um you know they get their their visas aren't extended and uh and, and so on and the, and the visa route is is closed because of the kind of failure of crystal ball glade gazing by by the civil servants responsible um so yeah i'm not not can't say i'm hugely excited about this one um it's interesting it's interesting and it's interesting that um the home office is kind of going back to this kind of approach which was which was scrapped by theresa may in 2011 um but yeah a, a lot remains to be seen on the kind of details and like you say and what does a top global university means and, and what are the other criteria going to be we just don't know yet yeah tbd the investor visa or tier one brackets investor, if you prefer, that's been in the news as well. Uh, listeners may know there's been for a long time concerns about money laundering and even national security, dodgy individuals using potentially ill-gotten gains in Russia, China, countries that have uh, corruption problems uh, to use as investment funds in the UK for this particular visa. And if you remember in 2018, the Home Office said it was launching a review and then a few months later, there was this bizarre incident where they issued a press release saying that the investor route was being abolished with immediate effect. And then nothing happened. Uh, I remember calling the press office saying, like, what's happening? Is the route now closed? When is it closing? And nothing. they wouldn't say anything. And then a week or so later, they quietly just trickled out a much quieter announcement saying, actually, no, we're not scrapping it after all. Just carry on. And, and that was kind of that. Um, what's happened now is that there's been a report by an NGO called Spotlight on Corruption. And what they say is that this 2018 review of the route is still ongoing and that over 6,000 visas issued between 2008 and 2015 are in scope of this review. So basically half of all the investor visas ever issued are being reviewed. And that's, I guess, a further sign that all is not well with this route. Yeah, it's difficult to know what to make of it, isn't it? And it's certainly been a very controversial route. There have been people who've questioned even why it exists in the first place. I and mean, what is the benefit to the country of having this this visa route at all? Um, and um, yeah, the, the, there have been some some interesting issues. And Transparency International, I think, did some uh, did did a major report which led to some fundamental rule changes previously. Yeah, I tell you, one one of the things that sort of strikes me is that it's quite marked how slow the Home Office has been to react to these allegations of you know outright high level corruption on this visa route, which involves really rich people, rather than the kind of just total 
all-out war, essentially, that the Home Office declares on a bunch of students um, or, you know, highly skilled migrants, um, where the, there's some sort of half suggestion of, of, of some sort of really quite, in comparison, minor issues, uh, minor dishonesty. Uh, yeah, it, it's, it, it's a noticeable contrast, should we say, between the, the Home Office approach to these kinds of people. Over then to asylum, there has been a case on benefits for refugees, or in fact, two cases, one in Scotland and one in England. And they both reach, I think, broadly the same conclusion, which is that once someone is recognized as a refugee in the UK, they can claim child tax credit backdated to the date of their asylum claim. Now, child tax credit has been replaced with universal credit. It's no longer sort of in existence as a benefit. But uh, if someone in this position is claiming for a period going back to before it was abolished. Um, so including the 31st of January, 2019, their period of claim, uh, then they can still get the money that they're entitled to. Uh, but they must make that claim within a month of being granted asylum and the government may appeal these rulings, but still seems like a good result. Um, the two cases are Adnan 2021 CSOH 63 for Scotland and DK2021 EWHC1845 admin for England and Wales. If people are claiming this this tax credit now, um, they should be aware that there's, or if lawyers are advising on this, there is apparently an appeal, I think Bilal says, in both cases that the Home Office is pursuing. So it, it sounds like clients probably wouldn't get the payout that that might be at stake here and if they did get it i don't know what ha- might happen if if the appeal succeeded and would it be reclaimed later or something like that? I, i'm just raising those as questions i really don't know what the answer to them is um but yeah d- worth, worth thinking about and but but it's good to know that this is actually out there and as i say i wasn't aware of it there's a, another case then which is around the home office rather sneakily changing its asylum screening interviews this was uh, during the pandemic they you know were under pressure with processing and so on they wanted to make the screening interview shorter and they did that but in doing so they omitted some questions that were designed to screen for human trafficking and that's led to litigation and including this decision that's this uh, i think sudanese man who was removed from the uk after a shortened screening interview must now be brought back to the uk or well i suppose more accurately the home office must use its best endeavors to find him and bring him back from france to where he's been returned uh, so that is interesting in the case aa sudan 2021 ewhc 1869 admin another high court case about this one is about the Dublin 3 process for reuniting asylum seekers in the EU with their family in the UK. So that Dublin 3 process went out with Brexit, but because part of the the Home Office policy on Dublin 3 was unlawful when it was still in force, uh, potentially hundreds of people who were previously refused reunion may n- now be able to reopen their case. So specifically, Caseworkers under Dublin 3 were told to automatically refuse applications from unaccompanied children if they hadn't resolved that application within the two-month deadline that was allowed under the Dublin 3 rules. And the High Court says that should not have happened. And the Charity Safe Passage, which took, which took this challenge, uh, they say that as many as 500 children uh, could now have a second go at applying for a reunion, even though Dublin 3 is no longer in force. Uh, so that's good. And the citation 2021 EWHC 1821 admin. Yeah, no no use going forwards, but potentially useful for those those 500 who were refused under the 
um, under the policy previously. And and this just, it really stands out as um, classic sort of home office cakeism because you've got the home office here just being absolutely militant about refusing to allow children who are in Europe to come to the UK where they've got relatives. It's like, well, there aren't many people who would say that's a bad thing, actually. Um, and yet also expecting to negotiate some sort of returns arrangement with the EU, ha- having shown zero solidarity or humanity or, or anything like that. Um, and, you know, just, I, I, I'm not sure whether ministers or civil servants understand that, you know, if you're trying to, <laughs> you can't have both of those things, basically. Next, there was a potentially interesting case from the European Court of Human Rights. This was about the rules on family reunion for refugees in Denmark. There was a Syrian refugee. He was given temporary protection status in Denmark. And the terms and conditions of that were that he wasn't allowed to apply to bring his wife to join him in Denmark for three years after being granted that status. And the European court says, well, hang on, your Danish domestic courts found that there were insurmountable obstacles to family life continuing in Syria for obvious reasons. And so this blanket three-year rule is a violation of Article 8. You have to be able to argue that your particular circumstances, um, there should be an exception. So the case is MA and Denmark, application number 6697-18. And we thought it might be relevant because in the UK, the government wants to start giving people temporary protection status with restricted family reunion rights. So I think there are maybe parallels with the Danish policy in this forthcoming UK policy. Yeah, and this I, you see the UK trying to echo a lot of what we're hearing coming out of Denmark. Uh, not not everything to be fair, and you know Denmark's trying to send people back to Syria allegedly. The, even the UK hasn't sort of suggested that that might happen. But um, yeah, it's interesting to see the, the the Danish policy being held to be unlawful here, and you know maybe maybe that might suggest to to the Home Office that it's not a good idea. Although uh, you know, even saying that out loud makes me realise that that's unlikely. Yeah, they'll probably just stick in a very exceptional circumstances caveat to the policy or something like that. And yeah, absolutely. and that's the sort of catch-all, isn't it, that, that, that they do. Finally then, uh, we've had the full report of the prisons inspector on the asylum accommodation at Napier and Penali, the converted military barracks. And this report, this final report didn't get as much coverage as an earlier interim report because the interim report a few months ago kind of front-loaded the most egregious findings. Uh, I did spot a quote from the chief prison inspector himself, Charlie Taylor. He said, I joined the inspection team at Napier and was shocked as much by the shambolic governments and haphazard commissioning of the site by the Home Office as I was by the totally unsuitable accommodation which is pretty strong. And the inspectors, one thing I pulled out of the report as well is that the inspectors reckoned that some of the staff working on these sites were actually themselves working in breach of their visa conditions, which uh, is impressively shambolic. Um, it kind of reminded me of when the immigration minister was found to be employing an undocumented cleaner a few years back. There's a certain irony about the whole situation. Yeah, and this this whole thing, I mean, ministers and I, I think civil servants um, come out of this very badly because you know, it's it's unfair to blame civil servants for political decisions by their ministers, but just the the way that this was carried out um, seems to have been really awful. Uh, and you know, on the one hand, I thought to be fair that the, you know, the pandemic was going on, I suppose. So it was very hard to, to supervise. And maybe I'm, maybe I'm going to let them off the hook here a bit, actually, because 
um, you know, if you've been directed that you have to do this by your minister, but also there's a pandemic going on, maybe it is very hard, to be fair, to, to actually make this happen on the ground. And ultimately, the responsibility for trying to push through such a controversial and difficult um, policy in in the teeth of such difficult circumstances, I mean, it does rest with Pretty Patel ultimately. And you'd expect heads to roll for this kind of stuff, but of course, you know, it's all grist to the mill. It actually helps them politically, probably, that they're treating people so inhumanly and awfully. And the human cost to those people is is just brushed under the carpet. It's kind of forgotten. It's really depressing. Yeah, just before we came on to the podcast, I saw a story by Mabel in the, in the Independent saying that uh, today, the 12th of August, there has been a second COVID outbreak at Napier Barracks. Let's, let's finish off with those couple of cases you mentioned. One of them is about the consequences for deception. So if you are a settled migrant, aka you have indefinitely to remain and you were found to have basically lied to the Home Office in the past, then your ILR can be revoked. But uh, Home Office policy on this uh, then says, well, if the deception was more than five years ago, settlement will not normally be revoked. So in this case, the uh, chap in question was from Albania. He claimed he was from Kosovo. He was granted settlement on that basis, I think, in 2010 under the Legacy Program and arrived much earlier than that. So one way or another, the deception was more than five years ago. So he tried to rely on this policy when they wanted to revoke his settlement. The upper tribunal did rule against him. But it did reiterate that any departure from a policy saying such and such will not normally happen, there must be decent reasons from the Home Office why that normal rule doesn't apply in the particular case, which may be useful. Um, And they also said there has to be a causal link between any deception and the grant of settlement. Citation uh, Matusha and Secretary of State Revocation of ILR Policy 2021 UK UT 175 IAC. Yeah, it's kind of, um, there's quite a few of these cases going on. This is this sort of goes the other way to a case that I did a while back called Slayman. Um, I'm not sure if it's sort of cited or looked at as far as I can see. I don't think it don't think it is actually. But this this particular guy doesn't seem to have helped himself because he was maintaining the deception even in his application for naturalization um in 2013. So it only comes clean in 2015. So I don't know whether that was sort of particularly unhelpful. It certainly doesn't sound good as opposed to some of the other cases where people have kind of come clean a sort of a bit bit later on. They haven't actively been deceiving the Home Office. I'm not sure that really makes that much difference at this point in time, but, but um, you know, it is, a, it is perhaps something to... Um, to think about if trying to kind of advocate on a on a case like this. Finally, then, there's an interesting case on long residence. You can guess settlements, ILR, after 10 years continuous lawful residence. And the question in this case was whether a visit visa could count towards the 10 years. So this was about a Mr. Munger who had come to the UK on a visit visa. He then left the country briefly so as to get a student visa. He couldn't switch directly from visitor to student from inside the UK. And they got a student visa, came back and lived in the UK uh, for just shy of 10 years. So then to get long residence settlement, he needed to rely on his period of permission as visitor to get to the 10-year period. And the Court of Appeal said, yeah, absolutely. When he left to get the student visa, he had a reasonable expectation of being able to return, not least because he he got his student visa in the end, right? So clearly the prediction that he'd get it was was reasonable because it was borne out by by events. Uh, And, you know, the court did say that reasonable expectation is is a fact-sensitive concept. So 
I don't take this case to mean that anyone with a visit visa can start counting it towards long residence necessarily, but it certainly is possible in a situation like this one. Uh, the citation uh, Munger twenty twenty one EWCA Civ one zero seven six. Yeah, so it's the, the court appeal is pretty robust on this one, saying that <laughs> it's sort of rejecting the Home Office arguments quite quite strongly. And um, you know, for example, being asked to accept that a visitor's expectation of being able to return to the UK on a different visa cannot be reasonable was was a bit of a tall order. And the Home Office basically saying the rules don't mean what they they appear to mean, uh, which is which is quite frustrating. But I quite like the um, I think we'll end on this. Quite like the line where the um, the court points out that. Um, the home, the home Office argument was that certain words they must mean what the Home Office wanted them to mean, otherwise they meant nothing. And the judge says that this submission assumes a logic and coherence that is not apparent in the drafting of paragraph 276A as a whole, which is, you know, just just an example of, of a long-running theme of ours that, that the immigration rules are really, really badly written, basically, and, and, and shouldn't be assumed to be coherent or, or logical in any way, shape or form. Right, that's the note to end on. Um, I hope that's been helpful and we'll be back next month. Goodbye.